Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because, you know, if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish. Or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps, because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Hey, what's up? This is Nolan from Past Gas by Donut Media. We are the world's number one automotive podcast, and this week it's part two of our series on Nissan, our conclusion of the Nissan story. We're talking about all the iconic Nissan sports cars in this episode. I'm talking Z car. How'd that even come to be? It turns out the guy responsible for it developed it in secret and then had to act surprised when the engineers showed it off for the rest of the company leadership. Very funny. Uh, and then, of course, Skyline GTR, Datsun 510. A little car called Godzilla. They're all in this episode. Check it out wherever you get your podcasts. It's part two of Nissan by Past Gas by Donut Media. Listen today. Past Gas Podcast. It's about cars, it's not about ports. Hey guys, welcome to the Past Gas Podcast. If you like Past Gas, please help us grow by giving us a good rating and a nice review on the podcast platform of your choice. It'll really help us out, and I really appreciate that, so thank you. All right, now for the show. A cacophony of slot machines, clinking glasses, and flicked lighters fills the ground floor of Jerez Casino in Laughlin, Nevada. The date is April 27, 2002. It's 2 in the morning. A group of bikers from the Mongols Motorcycle Club parties at Rose's Cantina. One of them notices something off, something worrying. Through the front door walks a group of their rivals, the Hells Angels. What happens next will change the small casino town forever. Not a long intro today. I want to know. (laughs) But it is, I mean, what it lacks in length definitely makes up for insulation. Yeah. It's like freaking, ooh, what's what's about to go down in Sin City? Sin City, Laughlin, Nevada. Laughlin is about a hundred miles <laughs> south of Sin City. Actually, uh, it's on the it's on the border of California. Uh, What's a minor sin? <laughs> like a, um, uh, gluttony. Not recycling Glutton city. No. <laughs> not recycling city. <laughs> <laughs> no, you should recycle. Um, anyway, <laughs> <laughs> no one doesn't have a. Like the ability to be a bad boy. Yeah. I really don't. I was thinking about that last night, actually. I had a dream where all of us, actually, and the rest of the donut crew were at our office 
um, and we were like having like a roast battle and like I couldn't <laughs> I couldn't think of any good roasts and I was I had like oh I started God. I think I started crying because I was like I, I can't <laughs> no. why can't I be mean in like a in a scenario where it's okay to be mean and I woke up thinking That's about so that endearing. like what the <laughs> you started crying in my dream it's not good in your dream. it's not good you woke up and your pillow is all stuck <laughs> I wish I could just roast somebody I, I've never been good at that like I've I don't know it shows and was Jeff Ross there in like a baby blue fedora <laughs> yeah 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 for like Paris Hilton for some reason he's hilarious man i thought those roasts were like the funniest thing ever when i was like 14 yeah i had a couple friends who used to write for him like some people are just i'm not good at being mean either some people are just like really good at getting getting people yeah Yeah. they would go deep on those things man they would get really mean yeah anyway guys today on past gas we are concluding our series on the hell's angels uh, and exploring some of the most notable events in the club's history. A lot of it has to do with their rivalry with the Mongols, another outlaw motorcycle club. Um, Stoked. I'm pumped. I love a good rivalry. Yeah. I love, like, beef. Rivalries are fun. What's for dinner? But, James, I have to warn you, this one is probably our darkest episode yet, somehow. Really? Yeah. Oh, man. Uh, it's going it's, <laughs> it's, <laughs> to just took the wind right out of the your The first shelf. thing you said after we stopped filming last week was like, man, that was like a lot of rape and murder. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. There's a lot like, of death. Bums me out. I'm sorry. Like, I want to apologize to the listener. Like, we chose this topic a couple, like two months ago now. And then at, when we're like, when we first pitched it, we're like, oh, man, this is going to be like so fun. Like, the Hells Angels are such like a crazy group of individuals and um i mean i think that still holds true but it's also very dark and yeah if you guys if you guys remember the hollister uh incident from (laughs) yeah a few episodes ago like that's what i was expecting like i was expecting some like roughing bar fights and just a bunch of chugging beers and doing wheelies and stuff and it's way darker than yeah, that, yeah. man. Like, yeah. yeah, so if you've stuck through way it darker. all the way through, I hats off to you. I hope you enjoyed it. Um, but, James and Joe, I promise there is light at the end of the tunnel in this episode. First, we're going to talk about some of the more intense confrontations the club has had with its rivals, both the Mongols and other clubs. Then, we're going to talk about Hel- the Hells Angels' protection of their copyrights, which is pretty interesting. Uh, then we're gonna talk about yeah, we're gonna talk about the club's charity work. Okay. Whoa, okay. Oh, and okay. also little... what the new generation of Hell's Angels looks like today. So it's gonna start off dark and then it's gonna get a little better at the end. So just hang in there, guys. Are you talking about the like little babies that have little baby motorcycles that are gonna take over one day? Uh <laughs> yeah. The little baby Hell Angels? Do we have the babies um Hell's Angels? Are they in, are they in, are they real, Nolan? Uh, Is that what are, you're talking about? They are real. Please tell us. They are real, James, okay. but like the Ninja Turtles, they are not nice. They're real. <laughs> no, Ninja not Turtles. Nice. Ninja Turtles are real, but they are not nice. <laughs> All right, so. <laughs> I've met them. Let's, are you guys, are you guys ready? You want to get into yeah. it? Yeah. Okay. In 1972, three Hells Angels were arrested after the bodies of two men and a woman were found buried at a California ranch. Uh, already, I told you, dude. man. <laughs> already, <laughs> hang in some there. Murders. Hang in there. 
The ranch was owned by George Weathern and his wife, Helen. George was the former vice president of the Oakland chapter of the Hells Angels. The bodies belonged to two men who had come up from Mexico in hopes of joining the club approximately 18 months earlier. The two men were suspected by the club of trying to stage a coup, however, and were lured to the ranch, while George and Helen were advised to stay away from the property. The prospects were given coffee laced with LSD and then strangled. This, is, this reminds me, I can't believe I haven't brought this up yet. My uncle, sorry to get off track right away, but my uncle owns a farm in Wisconsin and he was like a huge hippie and sold drugs for a while, but um, he is talks to everyone. He's one of those kind of dudes and he befriended a group of Hell's Angels that were coming through Milwaukee on the way to Sturgis, I think. Uh, and... He, they came out to his farm and they invited more friends and they were partying and partying. And at a certain point, my uncle was like, holy shit. Like, how do I get these guys out of <laughs> my farm? They're like, I'm, I'm have to feed them every night and I'm cooking them. Like they're taking up my bed, whatever. So he put, he used to sell LSD and he put a ton of drops in a bottle of wine and then handed it to him. And they all like, oh drank my God. it, passed it around. By the end of the week, he had them like, uh, like uh, harvesting his crops and like working what? on the farm. Yeah, and then they left on good terms, and everything was cool. That's amazing, dude. That, yeah. You need to write that movie. Yeah, that is awesome. Yeah, you should definitely write a, a script for that. That's insane, dude. I, that yeah, is insane. Yeah, what a gamble, dude. Yeah. What a I know. swing. You yeah, because like that could have gone. They could have had a bad trip, and then, <laughs> yeah. then my, uh, then my uncle would have been a body on his own farm. Yeah, that's insane, that's dude. Oh my god. And back to this, back to the script though. Like, how deviant is it to give someone LSD and then strangle? Them? Oh my god! Oh my god! Like to dose somebody and like actually be doing a really bad, you know, one of the, like the worst thing to them, killing them. That's an awful way to go, for sure. (laughs) Meanwhile, another angel was quietly serving time in prison. His name was Whispering Bill Pfeiffer. He had been diagnosed (laughs) with terminal cancer and decided to turn informant to avoid spending his final days in prison. He provided... I don't know why they call me Whispering Bill. (laughs) (laughs) Dude, shut up already. (laughs) He provided information to the police about the bodies at the ranch. The police raided the ranch, finding drugs, weapons, as well as the bodies of the two men. George Weathern and his wife and one Chester M. Green were arrested. Once inside, Chester also became an informant and started providing intel to the authorities about the Hells Angels. Chester M. Green testified against his former brothers in exchange for a reduced sentence. That's dirty, man. So yeah, even like uh, George Weathern... And Helen were not, they were, it was their farm, their property, uh, but they weren't involved in the, in the killing. However, they were taken away on murder charges. Uh, <clears throat> These are like the Takashis of the freaking <laughs> motorcycle club, huh? Yeah. I'm just so glad that, you know, like, I think we're really good friends, um, but we don't do anything that would require me to like stay quiet <laughs> yeah. to the cops about like, there's nothing... <laughs> Like, 
I don't think either of you are going to kill anyone. And if you do, I don't think you'll, you'd tell, like, tell us. Uh, anyway, once Chester Green was released, he immediately seeked protection in the form of another motorcycle club, the Mongols MC. The Hells Angels weren't the only outlaw motorcycle club in town. New clubs came and went all the time, with the latest one being the Mongols. Founded in 1969, the MC was only three nice. years. Yeah, nice. Uh, the the MC was only three years old and just getting into the game. They accepted Green with open arms as they couldn't pass up the opportunity to have a real Hell's Angel in their club, someone who could provide information and experience to make the um, make the Mongols a real deal outlaw MC. But the Angels weren't going to let a snitch off the hook that easy. To make matters worse for the club, Chester Green's brother, Bud Green, that's a... Bud Green, yeah, nice. hell yeah. <laughs> oh, <laughs> nice, dude. Oh, dude, fuck, dude, did you know that your name sounds like it does? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I never noticed. <laughs> yeah, so Bud Green, uh, he was living with the ex-wife of a Los, An uh, Los Angeles Hells Angel. Ooh, uh, that's a double no-no. Yeah. yeah, and... Uh, both the Green Boys had disrespected the H.A. Uh, yeah, and Bud Green was also in the Mongols. So that's like a double whammy of disrespect. So yeah, Green Boys, you got uh, 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 Chester Green snitching on the Angels. You got Bud Green, a Mongol himself, who is also shacking up with an ex-wife of an Angel. Uh, they had both disrespected. This is major disrespect. And the situation exploded during a chance encounter at the Great Western Expo Swap Meet in 1977. I bet there was so much cool stuff there. Oh, dude, yeah. you know it. A swap meet? So, and like, actually, Budweiser, like, bar plaques with moving <laughs> waterfalls and stuff? Actually, dude, yeah, I like a I, I've been kind of getting into swap meets a little bit. I think that they're... My, Dude, this is a ow, great time ow. to go and uh, walk around a, a you well, know, not right where now, people but like are a, gross and sick. Like last year, I would I went to a lot of swap meets uh, with my girlfriend cool. at the time because like now my my apartment is filled with furniture I got swap meets. In 77, you were probably able to find a lot of really good stuff. That That's what I'm thinking. Like now, like this secondhand culture is such a thing that like everyone thinks everything they have is worth a ton of money. Yeah. But I bet back in 1977... There were so many like pocket knives for a penny. <laughs> well, also yeah. there's probably a lot of old stuff as well, you know, that you can't find 50 years later today, you know? Right. Yeah. Like some old like Amish table. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So nine Hells Angels ran into what they described as a sea of Mongol patches, including Bud Green, mm. along with that ex-wife. Uh, even more unfortunate... Uh, the woman's angel ex-husband was one of the nine who was at the one of the nine Hell's Angels who was at the meet. Pretty awkward. As soon as he got the chance, the ex-husband walked up and decked Bud Green with one solid punch. Kanan, are you getting this? <laughs> hey, hey, that's my old lady. Hey, Bud Green. Yeah. Probably exactly how it went down. <laughs> Bad blood had already existed between the Mongols and the Angels. The Mongols felt some resentment towards the Hells Angels, feeling that they were living in the shadow of the Death's Head, which is a very cool sentence. Oh, yeah. So when 
So when the angel punched Bud Green, who was a fully patched in uh, Mongol, a massive fight broke out, as you can probably imagine. Yeah, boys, let's fight. <laughs> this is the kind of stuff I came to see. Hey, put down that Amish armoire. Come over. <laughs> oh, man. This is a nice menagerie. Hey, guys, I was at the tea cozy booth, and uh, I heard there was a rumble. I heard a really quiet punch. Are you guys all right? <laughs> Sounded like a 35-year-old man didn't want to hurt his hand with his other hand. <laughs> the angels grabbed anything they could use as a weapon. And since it was a swap meet, that meant there were plenty of motorcycle parts to choose from. Police reports of the event report the use of a machined motorcycle gear, which is super, super heavy and sharp, and I imagine used like a ninja throwing star. Uh, you know, yeah. shock absorbers <laughs> and a kickstand being used as a weighted club. The fight yeah, continued yeah. until a single young sheriff's deputy jumped into the middle of the fight to break it up. Ex That's brave. Oh, yeah. Ex-president of the uh, Hells Angels Ventura chapter, a guy named George Christie, described it as, quote, one of the bravest things I had ever witnessed. The angels were able to fight off the Mongols, but what they didn't know was that that fight would spark one of the longest and deadliest feuds in motorcycle club history. A war was in motion. It wasn't the famous Laughlin Casino brawl and shootout which came later. Not the bombings or the freeway shootings. It was a stupid fight over a woman. <laughs> the oldest reason there is. Very poetic, George. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Immediately, the Hells Angels LA chapter tried smoothing things over with the Mongols, uh, but some members viewed this as a weakness and forced the president of their chapter to resign. Ooh. Awkward. <laughs> the most pressure was coming from- So that from... was Christie? No, he was president of Ventura. Okay. Ventura, as I like to call it. Dude, all these dudes like in Barstow and like all these other places, not the sh** on Barstow, but it is in the middle of the desert and does get to be 120 degrees in the summer. And then this other dude lives in Ventura, which if you guys listening out there don't know, is a beautiful seaside town. Love Ventura. <laughs> uh, so I would like to be in that chapter. Yeah, that would actually probably be the chillest chapter, I think. It, yeah. Yeah. I'm the head of uh, Cardiff by the Sea, Hells Angels. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm representing the Carmel chapter, the Sonoma. <laughs> I'm going <laughs> to start a biker club, and our chapter is going to be located in... Uh, Sonoma wine country, yeah. Paso Robles <laughs> wine country. <laughs> you ride horses instead of motorcycles. <laughs> okay, so, but mo most of the pressure, though, uh, to keep the beef going was coming from Sonny Barger up in Oakland. And as one of the biggest figureheads of the Hells Angels organization, Barger was able to sway club opinion and continue the fight with the Mongols. Sonny helped set up Ray Glore, as the president of the LA chapter. But this decision would only make things much worse. It was Ray's job to pick up negotiations with the Mongols where the previous president had left off, but the Mongols decided that the new change in leadership meant that it would now be the best time to start pushing new terms in the peace agreement. It is worth mentioning that Ray was a terrible negotiator who loved to record all of his conversations and play them back at club. <laughs> oh meetings. my God. <laughs> During a taped exchange between the two MCs, the Mongols said, we've been doing a lot of thinking, 
and we are going to do a California rocker. Now, historically, the bottom patch on a cut, aka the rocker, carried the name of the charter. But as the Angels grew in size and the number of charters in the states increased, the Angels started using a rocker that simply said California. The Mongols' desire to incorporate that into their cut was a major sign of disrespect and an obvious power play. Retaliation, boys, would be necessary. California's our state. Well, I mean, since Hell's Angels had, are like the preeminent club of California uh, and have chapters, I mean, we basically said this, but have chapters all over the place, like, it's just easier to lay claim to the entire state instead of one region, you know? I mean, it's just you're saving money in embroidery <laughs> yeah, crops. That's true, too. You can really bulk order these markers. Yeah, just yeah. buy bulk patches. Word, word soon reached the angels that the Mongols would be hosting a highway run as a way to show off their new rockers. And the angels prepared their revenge. They waited in cars, surprisingly, along the highway all weekend, <laughs> hoping to spot a Mongol wearing a California rocker. After a while, a large group of Mongols was spotted by a waiting hunting party. Angels pulled up to the front of the group and opened fire on the two lead bikes. Damn. Riding those bikes was the Mongols' president, Redbeard, and another member, Jingles, as well as their old ladies <laughs> riding on the back. Both members and their old ladies were blown off the bikes. The two Mongols were killed instantly, though both girlfriends were shot and survived, although one was permanently paralyzed from the fall. The group, the group of bikes behind them didn't have time to react to the incident, causing a massive pileup as other members came crashing into their bikes. This is terrifying, dude. That, yeah. that is the crazy, that is crazy. No, thank you. Later that evening, when reports of the attack reached the news, a Mongol could be seen confused, saying, why would someone do this? Who's doing this to us? Though it was obvious to everyone what had happened, the angels had just officially declared war on the Mongols. Do you think that guy actually knew? He knew, right? You think he was just trying to like play dumb so that he could get revenge uh, I don't know what he was thinking, but I, I can imagine that, you know, he's in shock, you know? Yeah, for sure. I mean, yeah. That's because crazy. all the, the previous, the previous, you know, encounters were fistfights, you know? Right. Yeah. Barroom brawls. Like we're going to the swap meet. Let's scrap some, t but these guys are just riding down the coast and all of a sudden this dude just like freaking. Yeah. From a car. That's you don't a huge expect escalation. it coming from a car. Yeah. It's a huge escalation. I can I can understand that the, he'd be confused, you know. Two days after the attack on Redbeard, a funeral uh, was being held. During the funeral, an incognito Hell's Angel parked his van, walked in, and placed a red and white floral arrangement on the caskets. What? Yeah, those are the colors of the Hell's Angels. That Wait, is, so the the colors of the Hell's Angels are the same colors as the Anaheim Angels? Whoa. Yeah. Well, they originally they were called the Anaheim Hell's Angels. Oh, and they're <laughs> yeah. The baseball so team was like the, the as we'll find out later. The Hell's Angels are very litigious, and the the baseball team had to change their name. They had to they settled and said, "Hey, we'll just put we'll we'll take the hell out of it and just be the Angels." And the Hell's Angels were like, "All right, that's fine." Wait, is that real? No. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> they are litigious, though, as we'll find out. Anyway. Uh, yeah, so it was a clear sign to anyone paying attention that uh, the Hells Angels were at the funeral. Um, it is, it is, 
unclear if it was actually a Hell's Angel. It is not confirmed, just assumed. I just want to put that Okay. In. Thank you, James, for the clarification. Um, just want to keep our noses clean. This is good, solid journalism, no fake news. Minutes later, the whoever it was triggered a remote detonator, causing the van he had brought to explode. What? Dude, he blew it up? He blew up the van. Three people were injured in the attack, and, uh, you know, whoever was behind it, not pointing fingers, certainly got the point across. That's crazy. That's, like, not even retaliation. That's, like, you thought we were done, but we're not done. That's, like, yeah. terrorism. I'm going to blow yeah. up your funeral. I shot this guy, and then I blew up his funeral. That's, like, an Eminem lyric. <laughs> that, <laughs> it is. Giovanni Ribisi and Christina Ricci. <laughs> Giovanni Ribisi, Christina Ricci. Zucchini in a bikini. <laughs> we'll be right back with more of this story. But first, a word from our sponsors. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because, you know, if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app. Answer a few questions and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. As we mentioned in previous episodes, motorcycle clubs attacked, attracted a lot of war veterans. And after the Vietnam War, many soldiers returned from a war just to wind up in another war between motorcycle clubs. Many of these vets were trained with the usage of explosives, so the thought of using them against each other wasn't really a stretch. So bombs started going off everywhere. It didn't matter that it was happening in downtown Los Angeles as long as a Mongol got hurt, the angels were happy. Of course, some objected to the use of explosives, but their reservations just made them look weak to the club. This is just such a... I don't want to use the term escalation again because I feel like I've watered it down with how many times I've used it, but like... Heightening. The heightening, thank you, Joe, of this is just like... It, it, it's bonkers, man. It's insane. It's certified bonkers. Okay. All right, so some of the bombs looked like bad movie props with bundles of dynamite taped together. A member of the Hells Angels, Brett Eaton had rigged a bomb inside of a tire so that it would detonate whenever the tire valve was unscrewed. That is crazy. He walked the flat tire into a Mongol-owned bike repair shop and requested it to be serviced. Later that night, when the tire was being worked on, the bomb detonated, instantly killing Mongol Henry Jimenez and his 15-year-old younger brother, who happened to be helping out in the shop that evening. Very sad. Damn. Insane. The targeted bombings didn't stop with other Mongols either. 
players in the Northern California chapters were just as interested in using the bombs to further their own interests. Solano County Sheriff's Inspector Bill Zerby was blown up as a result of a car bomb. These guys, this is like terror. This is terrorism. It's yeah, straight man. up terrorism. This is like actual war stuff. He was headed towards a pre. He was uh, on his way to a pre-hearing of Oakland Hells Angels Vice President Jim Jim Brands, who was booked on drug possession. The Brandes. Brandes. Jim Brandes, who was booked on drug possession. With the increase in bombings came an increase in attention from the police. I would hope. I would fucking hope so. Um, <laughs> <laughs> members couldn't ride. Like, come on. Uh, members couldn't ride their bikes uh, with their colors on without getting pulled over. Obviously, the increase in police presence around the Hell's Angels gave the Mongols the break they needed and allowed them to increase their strength. Soon, the Mongols began their retaliation by killing an angel at a bar, successfully sending the message that the Mongols were ready to fight back. During a motorcycle show in Long Beach, which was Mongol territory, a Mongol attack resulted in the death of another angel. At this point, it was obvious that the Hell's Angels were no longer some untouchable mythic outlaws. There were real consequences. By now, Joe, the Angels and the Mongols had been at war for over a decade, and it resulted in nothing but needless violence and bloodshed. The L.A. chapter, now under new management as Ray had been murdered for being a suspected narc, uh, negotiated a peace deal with the Mongols that would last until 2002. So they, there was a period of peace there for like 20 years. Laughlin, Nevada is a small casino town nestled against the border with California, 100 miles south of Las Vegas. Starting in 1983, Laughlin was host of The River Run, a gathering of bikers from all over the Southwest region. While it started small with just a few hundred attendees, by 2005, The River Run brought over 70,000 bikers, increasing the population of Laughlin by a factor of on the last weekend of April 2002, a Saturday, the River Run was in full swing. In attendance that year were the Hells Angels, staying at their longtime River Run hang, the Flamingo Hotel. The Mongols were also at the River Run in Laughlin, making their home at Harris Casino Resort. Laughlin police were keeping a close eye on both clubs. There was some chatter from the Mongols that they were looking to beat up some angels and assert their dominance at the event. There are rumors online that the Mongols were supposedly harassing Hells Angels supporters selling Hells Angels support gear that afternoon. Basically merch. Yeah. Support gear is official Hells Angels and other MC merchandise that people outside the clubs can buy. This stuff is usually clothing and always has the word support on it, which denotes that the wearer is not in the club. The vendors selling the Hells Angels support gear were very likely affiliated with the club. And if the Mongols did indeed harass them, that would be grounds for retribution. But unfortunately for everyone in Harris that weekend, the tension between the Angels and the Mongols was about to be ratcheted up even further. After hearing about the harassment inflicted by the Mongols on the merch tent, the Angels were understandably upset and they decided to do something. At nearly 2 in the morning, 35 Hells Angels left the Flamingo Hotel for Harris. Laughlin police knew the Mongols were staying at the hotel and had warned the staff that there might be trouble. About 40 to 50 Mongols were hanging out at Rose's Cantina, a bar on the casino floor. 
now, what was about to transpire is commonly known as the River Run Riot, an all-out brawl that turned into a gunfight between the two clubs. If uh, if you guys grew up watching like those most extreme videos on Spike TV, those kind of shows, then you've probably seen the CCTV footage of this confrontation. It's very famous. This is the event that I think of with the Hells Angels, unfortunately, because I saw this when I was a kid. Right. All right, when you <laughs> when you see this incident on TV, it will usually seem like the Angels went right up to the Mongols and started fighting with them. But in our research, we found that that's not necessarily true. It actually took about 45 minutes from the Angels' entry to when the first kick was thrown. Apparently, the two clubs kept their distance and scoped each other out. Eventually, a Mongol did confront one of the Angels, asking who was in charge. According to my new favorite website, theagingrebel.com, that's when an angel landed a flying karate kick on the Mongol. Yeah! And the brawl ensued. Fists turned into wrenches, wrenches into knives, and knives into guns. More than 100 members of the Hells Angels and the Mongols were involved in the fight. Most of them were injured. 16 of them had to go to the hospital the beatdown, unfortunately, left three bikers dead, one Mongol, and two Hells Angels. It was a huge, Damn. there was like a huge gunfight going on. The CC, you can see that, you can find the footage on online. You can see dudes shooting guns just randomly at just the crowds of each other. Oh my God. Um, it's pretty gnarly. Uh, I want to, I, I want to talk to that guy who's just like, hey, I'll wait behind this Wheel of Fortune uh, slot machine, you give me the word and I'll come jump off this chair and kick someone in the chest. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, man, it's like so kind of hilarious and bad <laughs> that this huge, terrible fight was started with a flying karate. <laughs> that, is, like, that is such a sick like decision. That is my favorite detail <laughs> oh, for my, sure. What's my strongest strike? Uh, probably my flying karate kick. <laughs> <laughs> You have a gun. <laughs> like, like so many other very public incidents involving the Hells Angels, the Laughlin battle only confirmed what the public uh, wanted to believe about outlaw motorcycle clubs. But according to the Aging Rebel and a few other sites, it's possible the two clubs were goaded into a confrontation by the ATF, or the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms. Supposedly, ATF agents were whispering in the ears of both clubs, trying to get them to sort each other out. Uh, there's actually, I didn't get into it in my research or in the script for this podcast, but there's like a whole rabbit hole about the ATF um, using informants and uh, using their agency to just perpetuate the, the, the conflict between both clubs. It's very interesting. Um, you can look into that in your own time. It's very complicated as well. Is it more and of like a conspiracy theory? It's a or? little, I mean, a, it's true according to the people in the clubs. Um, uh, but, you know, I there's a lot to parse through, you know, and there's a lot of like different sides to the story. Uh, but if that sounds interesting to you, check it out. Sure. Operation Black Biscuit is what you want to look up. Ooh, cool operation. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Supposedly, Sonny Barger wanted to have a peace sit-down with the Mongols that weekend, which obviously did not happen in time. I'd say. The what? I'd, I'd say it didn't happen in time. I'd say. Yeah, definitely. Whatever the truth is, so-called River Run Riot changed, changed the yearly get-together forever. What was once a laid-back and peaceful gathering of bikers all over the West turned into something watched extremely close 
by the authorities afterwards. The attendees were no longer just bikers, but hundreds of police officers lining the streets of Laughlin. Uh, Laughlin, sorry, not Laughland. The organizers also banned those in attendance from wearing their colors as to not spur on any more confrontations. The next year, the motorcycle cops got in a fight with the horse cops. <laughs> Since the Hells Angels more or less operate with a mindset of perpetual superiority to other outlaw clubs, the Mongols aren't the only club the Hells Angels have gone to war with. You're, you might remember a shootout between the Angels and another club originating from San Bernardino, the Vagos. The Vagos, yeah. The Vagos, also known as the Green Nation because of their signature green patch, was founded in Berdu in 1965. Since their founding, they can now claim around 4,000 members worldwide. Despite running on the same turf as the Hells Angels, the two clubs never got into any serious conflicts and usually restrained themselves to a number of small confrontations that ended with a bloody lip and a busted knuckle. The two clubs skirmished for decades, but no battle ever ended with death. According to the Aging Rebel, it's rumored that the two clubs had an agreement that the Bagos would stay out of Arizona. That was until around 2009 when the clubs started fighting in small bouts, in small numbers of combatants. In June of 2009, five Hells Angels attacked two Vagos at a saloon in Bullhead City, Arizona. The tension escalated into a crescendo the next year. And on August 21st, 2010, the Vagos were having a gathering at a club member's house in Chino Valley, Arizona. It was a bring-your-kids-style barbecue, a very typical get-together in MC circles. What wasn't typical was a similar gathering of Hells Angels just 300 yards down the street. What neighborhood is this? To celebrate one of their guys getting off parole. The Angels party took place at a two-story stucco house that used to be the Hells Angels Skull Valley chapter headquarters. You can probably see where this is going. The Angels saw the Vagos' close proximity as a sign of disrespect and refused to believe the Vagos didn't know the significance of the stucco house. That afternoon, a Vago did a U-turn in front of said stucco house and the Angels opened fire. The Vagos down the street returned fire on the Angels. The clubs exchanged an estimated 50 to 100 shots over 10 minutes, wounding five riders. Thankfully, no one was killed, but the event resulted in 27 arrests. It seemed That's like crazy. a pretty open... It, it was crazy. Yeah, so before the shooting, there was like a smaller confrontation at a gas station that kind of led up to this. Like some that some uh, angels and mongols were kind of checking each other at this gas station. I see you filling up your gas tank as a sign of disrespect <laughs> to my gas tank. Uh, the Vagos went looking for said Hell's Angels that had harassed one of their guys. And then as one of the that Vago was coming home, he did that U-turn in front of the house. And that's when it went down. Uh, so like, that's crazy. Yeah. So it seemed like a pretty open and shut case, right? Just convict everyone who was seen shooting. But there was a problem. The main witness to the shootout was a Vago's hangaround. Someone who wanted to be in the club but was not yet a prospect. The state's case against the Hells Angels and everyone involved in the shooting fell apart when it was revealed that that hangaround was a criminal informant who had tried to join the Hells Angels before he linked up with the Vagos. Could his testimony be trusted? Here's a blurb from a great article on the case by Phoenix Magazine. In the wake of the shooting, law enforcement obviously sought to preserve their Vagos informant. Might that have skewed the case against the Hells Angels? And what about 
the informant's motives. According to Detective John Morris, he tried to hang out with the Hells Angels in Kingman before courting the Vagos, but they kept kind of just shunning him. Was he bitter over this slight? Could he have lit the powder keg on Yuma Drive? The uh, the judge just threw out the case because there wasn't any way that there that the prosecution's only witness could be partial. Um, and when that guy's a dork. <laughs> so that's kind of the last major incident between the Hell's Angels and another club. Um, I do remember hearing about that on the news and didn't really think much of it. Um, it's a lot more recent than I thought it would be. I thought that everything crazy would have ended in like the seventies. Yeah. Right now it's still, it just, it, it seems to, it's like earthquakes almost like there's like, you know, little tremors here and there. But then if there's not a tremor for a long time, it just explodes all at once and you have a big event. Um, it's like, yeah, we sell merch and stuff and like we're like pretty legit, but like I want to rumble every once in a while, you know what I mean? Yeah. All right, so I think that's probably enough violence for one episode. What do you guys think? <laughs> yeah. All right, so let's turn I could our... use a little bit more. <laughs> Well, a little bit more of the ultraviolet. Let's uh, turn our attention to a major way the Hell's Angels protect themselves today. Lawsuits. James, uh, I remember you saying <laughs> at the beginning of this series that the Hell's Angels are traded on the stock market. Uh, and I, I wasn't able to find anything on that, actually, unfortunately. But mm. luckily there's... That was according to Killer Mike. That's how I got that. Oh, okay. Well, maybe Killer Mike has some inside knowledge that we don't. But... That doesn't mean that the Hells Angels aren't business savvy. Because of their notoriety, outsiders can't help themselves from using Hells Angels iconography for profit. To quote Sonny Barger, Well, I don't want to sound pig-headed, but there's a million people out there that want to make a dollar off the name of the Hells Angels and the emblem Hells Angels. And we try to stop them. Fair enough. Yeah, I mean, I think that's fair. To protect the club's image and intellectual property, the Hells Angels established the Hells Angels Motorcycle Corporation back in 1970. Uh, the corporation has board members, all of them active Hells Angels from chapters all over the country. And at first... What a fun board <laughs> meeting. At first, the corporation fought diligently against outside clothing brands using the Death Head logo. The board's creation was done at the height of the club's infamy, when they were still very present in the pop culture zeitgeist. So around the time, like, you know, of Hunter S. Thompson and the, the Altamont Free Concert, like, there were just a lot of, mm -hmm. you know, they were, they were very super relevant still. Oh, but 50, 50 years later, later, things are a little different. The club is still extremely litigious and protective of their trademark, but for, for different reasons, I would say. The Hells Angels head lawyer is a guy named Fritz Clapp. He first represented the club in 1992 when the Angels sued Marvel Comics over a character called Hell's Angel, a sorceress who is given superpowers like energy blasts and the ability to conjure portals by the Angel of Death. She could also crush a beer like none other. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, brother. She could ride from Purdue to Stockton. <laughs> <laughs> that is a great superpower. Uh, that's amazing. <laughs> a settlement was reached between the two parties after Clapp successfully demonstrated that the club owned the copyright to the Hell's Angel name. The club did not seek payment directly from Marvel, but instead act at the comic giant make a $35,000 donation to a children's charity, which Marvel did. Marvel then renamed the character to 
Dark Angel. Look, yeah, all sweet. we want to do is meet Stan Lee. If you could set that <laughs> up, we're going to drop the suit. <laughs> In recent times, the Hells Angel Motorcycle Corporation has gone after other big pop culture figures erroneously using the Death's Head image. In 2013, they sued Rob Deirdrick uh, <laughs> and, his, and the clothing brand Young and Reckless when the company used the Hells Angel logo on a t-shirt. The Angels were victorious in court. The next year, the corporation sued rapper Young Jeezy and his brand 8732 using the death head on a vest surrounded by the words Street Bandits 87. As soon as the Angels filed the lawsuit, Jeezy pulled the merch but was still ordered to pay a club a decent sum. Dealing with the Hells Angels in court can be a strange experience for defendants because the way the club handles lawsuits starkly contrasts how the club is portrayed in pop culture. No one is throwing a brick through your window. No Harleys are riding past your house in the middle of the night. It's strictly business. According to Kevin Drucker, a lawyer representing Headgear Incorporated, another company the Angels sued, quote, initially we were not sure whether we had to worry for our safety, but the impression I was left with was that when they litigate, they do it civilly. This changed the way I thought about them. <laughs> we'll get back to more past gas, but right now, a word from our sponsors. Despite the Angels' reputation as loose cannon vigilantes, the sort of minds, that sort of mindset doesn't work in the court of law. You can't punch people in front of a judge. It behooves the club to use the same system that they've existed in spite of to protect their IP, but their motivations are twofold. According to their lawyer, Mr. Clapp, Esquire, part of the strategy is to bring shock and awe cases and to shine a bright light on them in federal court and the media. The intent is not just to punish the infringers, but to educate the public that the Hells Angels marquees are well guarded and not generic and that they must not be infringed upon. Unlike the copyright protection of the 70s, which saw many brands trying to cash in on the fame of the Angels, today's litigation is a sort of club legacy preservation, letting outsiders know that the club is still going and not afraid to protect themselves. Perhaps the highest profile suit in recent memory is the Hells Angels of Australia fight against global online marketplace Redbubble. If you're not familiar with that site, here's how it works. Artists post their work in the form of posters, stickers, or clothing, and Redbubble acts as a middleman producing the products, then sending it to the consumer. The products can be original works made in earnest or less legitimate efforts. This is like Teespring. Yeah, just plain ripoffs of copyrighted material. You can probably see where this is going. The Hells Angels Australia, represented by the Hells Angels Motorcycle Corporation, noticed that Redbubble was selling merchandise using an image of a Hells Angels membership card, along with the images clearly using the Death Head logo. The Hells Angels alleged Redbubble engaged in direct infringement of the copyright, making them available online. Alternatively, if Redbubble's conduct did not amount to direct infringement, Hells Angels Australia argued Redbubble was responsible for the authorization of copyright infringement by the artist, or Redbubble was jointly liable with the artist responsible. Simply put, no matter how the death had found its way onto Redbubble, the Angels thought Redbubble should be held responsible. So the judge ordered Redbubble pay $5,000 in damages, and you won't find Hell's Angels on Redbubble anymore. So sorry, just a lot of uh, 
I just think it's crazy that a lot of online retailers had to change the way they do business because of the Hells Angels of all people. Yeah, that's crazy. Today, members of the Hells Angels don't exactly fit the image helped popularize by the yellow journalism of the 1960s and 70s. If you remember in part three of this series, Hunter S. Thompson described in his book a few Hells Angels that held professional blue-collar jobs and even traded in the stock market. In the 60s, members like that were outliers, but today they are way more common. There is still a large presence of members in their 70s, but a new wave of younger members is swelling within the club. According to a New York Times article, some work in motorcycle repair shops or tattoo parlors, but others have less stereotypical jobs. Eye doctor, chef, accountant, <laughs> master's student in thermodynamics, lawyer, military contractor, and high school football coach, whatever their generation, the Hells Angels are bound together as renegades, if not outlaws. Whatever their current occupation, one thing many younger Hells Angels have in common is something they share with members of the original motorcycle clubs in the 1950s. They're veterans. The same thing that attracted young men to these clubs after World War II persists today. The feeling of belonging. Take, for example, Andres Ospina, a former Marine Scout sniper instructor who also worked as a defense contractor in Iraq. Here's what he had to say about being an angel uh, taken from that same New York Times piece. I credit the club with saving my life. I had two choices. I could have become antisocial and locked myself in an apartment and cried about things that upset me, or I could be social with people who are like-minded. Clutching his Hell's Angels vest, Mr. Ospina, a father of two, said, In a sense, this is my armor now. It keeps people away. I am literally fighting for my own right to be who I want to be and to be left alone. Andreas is not alone. There are many Hell's Angels today who are veterans of our wars in the Middle East. Many of them young men with families. Many hoping to capture that feeling of camaraderie and belonging once again. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Okay, so... Again, I want to end this series on a positive note. This series was pretty tough to research, and I'm pretty sure it was just as hard to listen to. And James, I want to apologize to you <laughs> because <laughs> you somehow had to read all the dark stuff through this series. All the murders. I got all of them. <laughs> I promise that wasn't on purpose. That's just how it kind of worked out. Uh, but over, this, over the course of this series, a saying kept popping up in my head. I think it was Sonny Barger who said it. I can't remember exactly, but it goes something like, when we do something right, nobody remembers. When we do something wrong, nobody forgets. Uh, that's a common sentiment in the Hells Angels. Now, we've covered a lot of wrong in this series, but I also like to think that we also covered wrongs done by the authorities and the media reporting on the Hells Angels. But you know what? To end this series, I want to remember the rights as well. And as my gift to you, James, and your mental health, <laughs> you, you get to read them. So I get to read some good news. You get news. to read some good news. Some good deeds? Yes, sir. All right. Many Hells Angels chapters across the U.S. have a long-held toy drive tradition around Christmas time. Just last year, a thrift shop in Long Island by the name of Angels of Long Island received help from the Hells Angels of Long Island <laughs> when the thrift shop was coming up short on their toy drive numbers. When the Hells Angels got word that less underprivileged kids would be getting a gift under their tree, they reached out and leapt into action delivering eight truckloads worth of toys and clothes to the kids. Several Hells Angels helped check people in and assisted families when it came time to distribute the gifts they had collected. This wasn't the only charitable event the Long Island chapter hosted that year. They held several food and clothing drives to serve the Long Island community. 
Now, toy drives like these are not uncommon for Hells Angels. Back in 2016, the Fresno chapter here in the beautiful state of California was able to fill 14 semi-truck trailers full of bicycles and distributed them to deserving kids as part of their toy run. Last year marked the 21st anniversary that the Fresno chapter had put on that event. According to member Merle Herrerman, during, during an That's a hard oh, name to say. Herriman, Merle yeah. Herriman. Merle Herriman. <laughs> it sounds like a um it sounds like a uh Hal Rudnick character. <laughs> yeah. The rural juror, to, Merle Herriman. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. According to member Merle Herriman, during an appearance on local news, Fresno's toy run gets bigger and bigger every year, with more and more kids receiving toys and bikes from the Hells Angels. Bikes are an important part of Hells Angels charities, and that's probably not an accident, right? Bikes are basically small motorcycles <laughs> without an engine on. Fresno Chapter donated over 1,700 bikes to 1,400 families selected by groups like the Salvation Army and the local... That's a lot school. of bikes, dude. It's a lot of bikes. Yeah, some families got more than one bike, it looks like. Yeah. Yeah, so they could ride around their little brother and sister. That's great. I love that. Yeah, that's pretty admirable. Some people might say it's all for PR, but if 1,700 kids get bikes, I don't think you can say there's anything wrong with it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I mean, th th there are tons of, um, like, pretty much every charter across the um, U.S. does a toy drive like this every year. I think that's really cool. Um, I kind of want to donate to one this year, this Christmas. Yeah, man, we should. I think that'd be really great. At the beginning of this series... We said we wanted to figure out just who the heck the Hells Angels are. And for now, after all this research and discussion, I'm not actually sure I can conclusively answer that question. There's no doubt, though, that the public's perception of the Hells Angels is still a negative one. There, there's too much negative press and negative events spanning over decades for that opinion to change quickly. But truthfully, I don't think I can say that I view the Hells Angels the same way I did when we started this series. There are, without question, criminal elements within the organization, as we've discussed today. Reprehensible things have been done in the name of the club. But how is that any different than regular society, the same one that the angels have fought against since the beginning? How many atrocities have been committed in the name of imperialism? How many sacrifices have been made at the altar of the almighty dollar? The Hells Angels aren't any different from us. They are us. The logical conclusion of a system that casts so many people away when it decides it doesn't need them anymore. Yeah, it's true. And if you think about it, we love, as a society, we love Matthew Broderick, but no one talks about how he was drunk driving and killed someone. So, I don't know. Double standard what? much? <laughs> yeah. I mean, obviously, horrible things have been done. Like, we just, I mean, we, we covered three of them today. Um, but... Mm -hmm. I don't know. Lots of other bad things have also been done in other areas that don't get as much press as this motorcycle club. Everybody sucks, man. Everybody sucks. Everybody, that's the lesson I want you guys to take away from today's episode <laughs> and the series. Everybody sucks. Uh, but hey, we can make the world a better place, man. We can. That's my that's my sincere belief. Uh, we can we can do it. Well, bravo. So bravo. that's the end of the Hell's Angels. Yeah. Well, <laughs> make sure you guys tune in next week. Um, for the first part in our multi-part series on, on the Nuremberg trials, oh my, <laughs> on 
Arrington Senna. Yes, Arrington Senna. Um, we are doing you know, that. If you know that story, it, it does end in a very sad way, but there's a lot of joy and fun and uh, inspiring stuff along the way. Um, make sure you don't miss any of that stuff. Go ahead and hit that subscribe button if you're listening on YouTube. Uh, subscribe if you're listening on um, on Spotify or subscribe if you're listening on whatever audio format you're listening to this on. Uh, go ahead and leave us a review. Follow Donut across social media at Donut Media. Stay up to date on everything we got going on. Follow Nolan at Nolan J. Sykes. Follow Joe at Joe G. Weber. Follow me at James Pumphrey. Uh, thanks again for listening, guys. This is a really fun thing that we get to do. I love you. Yeah, be kind, man. And also fire it up. <laughs> <laughs> Don't forget to fire it up. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because, you know, if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish. Or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps, because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.